So how in the world can teachers help kids with ADHD by allowing them to move more than they already do? Wouldn't that distract other students? In today's podcast, you'll hear me talking with mother, educator, and author Nicole Biscotti about her experience raising a son with ADHD, with a specific focus on the need for movement in children with ADHD in the school setting. listening to Finding Your Brilliance, and I'm your host, Catherine Kui. Hi, Nicole. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is my jam, getting to talk to other moms and authors and educators about a topic that you would think I'd be super sick of by now because I've been studying ADHD for so long. And yet the more I learn, the more I want to know and the and the more cool people that I come into contact. So I'm so happy to get to speak with you today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be speaking about this as well. And I agree with you. There's so much to learn about ADHD and it it really provides us with a lot of opportunities to expand our own thinking. I was reading about you. I've been reading about your new book and let me see. I can learn when I'm moving, going to school with ADHD. Do I have it right? That is correct. Yeah. And it just launched, right? Yes, it did on Friday. On Friday. So how long did you work on it? Oh my goodness, like two years. Did you know a ton about ADHD before you had a son with the diagnosis? No, I did not. And and that's one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is that as an educator, I found that I was very inadequate when it came to advocating for my own son. And it made me reflect and realize that in my own practice as a teacher, I really wasn't prepared to support my students with ADHD very well. This is such a fabulous topic that we're going to dive into today, the need for movement. And it's something I'm so passionate about. I mean, especially because I love yoga, I'm someone who doesn't have ADHD, but I move a lot. I need a ton of input. And so families, when they're talking to me about what do I do, how do I get my, my child is, and I was, you know, reading a little bit of the preface and the forward in your book and how you were quoting aspects of what your son had said around his difficulty, feeling bad and feeling like he just couldn't stop and you getting the calls from school. And I was relating so much as a parent of a ADHD or myself uh, and with your professional background too. And so how did you come around? So you were in a position where you're thinking my son's getting in trouble and how did you get so connected to the idea of the need for movement? Really talking to Jason. So the way that the book was born, if you will, was through journaling. I was always trying to find ways to help Jason calm down because I found that for Jason, he doesn't need things explained to him a bunch of times. It's really much more about that impulse control issue and providing what I call a safe place to land. So we were always looking for different ways to help Jason calm down. And one of them that I tried one day, I think I've probably tried almost everything, was journaling. So we would start journaling on my phone. And then I started to realize that we were really putting together a narrative. And I started to look at the themes of this narrative. And one of them was that the kid just really wants to move. 
<laughs> and then when I would look at him when we were talking, I would notice in his body language that he almost never stops moving. Jason is extremely hyper. He almost literally never stops moving. And then when I started to ask him about that, he would tell me, mom, I just need to move. And I get mad and I get frustrated when I can't move at school. And then of course, what that translates into when you're five is throwing pencils or (laughs) deciding to be a bunny in the middle of the lesson, or maybe running out the door um, and all those things that he would then get suspended for. Oh, and breaking your heart. And that's the thing that I've explained to so many people too. When when my son would go to the principal and all of this, I explained that, you know, I felt the need as a parent to say he wasn't cussing out the teacher. He was, and even if he had been, the bottom line is the frustration would have been that high. But I was saying he was wandering. He was moving around. He was, you know, and those are the things that, that both of our boys have been shamed around. So that's the piece for you. And when I was listening to you talk also, you, well, I feel like you were talking because in your book, it's so casual and so lovely. It feels like I've been talking to you. You talked about your own shame as a parent too. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's very awkward. Even as a teacher, I think most of us in our generation come from that school of the idea of compliance and authority. So here we find ourselves sitting in the principal's office and we feel like we're being called on the carpet. But yet as moms, we know that they're missing the mark. And I hope that through this work and through these conversations, we can empower parents that are feeling that way, that have that sense that, like you said, my kid is not doing anything aggressive towards the teacher or just random. It's coming from a need that's not being met. Right. And that's, it's hard to say that because it requires us to kind of buck the system. It does. I was introduced to a sensory room prior to the pandemic at a school. I wanted to see their sensory room. And Nicole, it was, this was in an affluent area. This room was stark. This was a room that had like one little chair in a corner and like a few things on the floor it was like this barren little windowless space where a child is supposed to go in. And, and, and then in that moment, I was thinking, I want to be like the sensory room person. Like I want to have a, you know, I would love to be able to make these spaces feel satisfying for kids who need to move. So let's dive into what you, you know, I know you, you mentioned that your book is based on research and other, you know, and so what did you write about in specific terms? You know, let's talk if we had like five things for parents to really know about how they can advocate for their child in schools around movement. Sure. And and just to touch on the research aspect of my book, I was a doctoral student for part of the time I was writing the book. So it definitely is influenced by research. And I do bring in a lot of research into the conversation in the book. But I just want to point out that really my primary source for research, excuse me, was Jason. Was Jason. (laughs) It really was because I started the book really just trying to understand my son and how to help him. But what was fascinating to me was that as he would tell me things that he needed or that he felt, and then I would go into the research, the research was agreeing with Jason. Yeah. It was all coming together. 
And then I would go back everything in the book. I, I would say, well, do you agree with this, Jason? What do you think about that? And, and some things he would give me his spin on. But going back to the movement, there are many ways that we can incorporate movement into our classroom. The first way that I like to bring up is because I think it really hits the importance of creating that partnership with our ADHDers is individual movement. And what I mean by that is I teach high school. So I, I like to say I have a lot of tall Jasons in my class. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I spot them right away. <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll sort of pull them aside when I need to and say, you know, so-and-so, I notice that you go to the bathroom a lot. Do you need to use the restroom or are you finding that you need to get up and move? And a lot of times they'll, they'll usually, I, I think almost every time, they'll tell me, you know, Miss B, I need to walk sometimes or I just, I just can't sit still that much. So I'll say, okay. Well, let's come up with an agreement. So a lot of times that looks like um, maybe a student likes to go stand in the back of the room sometimes. And when they're standing, they might need to kind of march in place or kind of wiggle. But but that's okay because they're in the back of the room. Or maybe they need to go take a water break. I used yeah. to teach portables. And I had one kid that said, well, if you just allow me to walk around the portables twice, I can come back a lot more focused. So that was his little thing. He would walk around. Right. And we made it an agreement where it was very unobtrusive. He would just kind of, you know, give me a hand, walk out the door. We didn't talk about it. So I think that Jason likes to do water breaks. When he was little, his teachers would incorporate this by having him do errands to the library. Jason brought a lot of books back and forth. You had some wonderful teachers then that, that, bought, that knew he needed this. I did have some wonderful teachers. Um, I think we had the full gambit. Yeah. You know, we also had some some experiences that were difficult. Did you suggest, Nicole, that he be able to go to the library and bring books? Or how did this happen? That was actually before I understood that. That oh. was in first grade. It was a, a teacher. No, excuse me. It was actually the principal that said, um, I think that sometimes Jason needs to go bring books to the library. Mm-hmm. And because Jason likes to help. In all honesty, he didn't realize it was a movement intervention at that time. He really just thought that he was helping by bringing the same books back and forth. Jason was open to these ideas, you know, and and he was then like six when you all started providing different interventions for him, like more formally. Yes, he was six. So during his preschool years, he was in a preschool that was a teaching facility So they were always trying different things as well, but not quite classroom interventions. It was more social, emotional, um, more like counseling sort of interventions. And then in kindergarten, Jason was ultimately basically expelled um, from kindergarten because that was um, kind of a disaster or a series of disasters. And then in first grade, we went to a different school and we had a wonderful principal and assistant principal that really taught me a lot. And um, that's when I think we really got to work with the interventions. Did they teach you that he had ADHD? Did did you know by when he was getting expelled in kindergarten that he had ADHD? No. And that's something that I address in the book as well, that we don't actually, generally speaking, identify ADHD years before seven because they're identified through um, classroom behavior behavior at home. There has to be a doctor. You know, there's there's different components to this. And it's also very hard to identify. So in, in preschool, for example, 
Jason's my fourth child and I'm a teacher. So I knew something was, was definitely up. And I think most parents that I've spoken to had that sense. Yeah. But it's awkward because you have like no validation externally. You know, people will say, well, you know, he's a kid. He's only three. He's only four. And you're going, eh, this is not quite. <laughs> people all want to make it okay. They want to make the parent feel that somehow it's okay. Yes, which is really not okay because they they want to make us feel okay, but what it ends up doing is making you feel crazy. Don't you think? Absolutely, because then we feel like we're responsible for this. I think parents inherently feel responsible for their children's behavior. Child is acting kind of crazy in preschool like mine was. You feel like you don't know what to do to get them to stop. Yeah. So you're having these discussions, which I'm sure you had with Jason, like calm your body. (laughs) Jason sounds like he's this really articulate child who was saying things to you like, I can't. Yes, he was. And looking back, something that that brings me sadness is looking back now, you know, hindsight is 2020. He was really always telling me what the problem was. I just didn't have enough understanding to really understand what he was saying. And and then, so he got into a better school and you're correct. Our son was diagnosed earlier because I'm a psychologist and I think it was just so blatant. And there were people coming at me telling me there's a concern, there's a concern. But I think you're right. If I hadn't been a psychologist, I probably would have been in denial longer, or I would have just not known the people to say, you know, who did your child get evaluated by? And I wouldn't have known the system of how to do that. But so he gets into a better school, Nicole. And so then they start, the principal's making some suggestions. So you've said, you know, partnership with your child, have the movement be individual for that student. Then, you know, let the child do errands, let the child be like the classroom gopher almost, if you will. I don't know. I'm, I'm like, is that a terrible term I'm using? <laughs> no, no, it's actually not because what it, that did, those errands really saved face for Jason because instead of him getting in trouble, he was being helpful or he felt he was being helpful. So that really flipped the script for him, actually. Like, what are some of the other ways that a teacher can help a student without them looking odd or weird or... And that's something that I address a lot in my work is that as students, I have over 170 kids. I don't remember everybody's accommodations at all times, although I I, I would love to say I could, but it's very difficult. There's a lot of whole class accommodations that are great for everybody and that actually have been shown to increase learning for everybody, but they do address the needs of our ADHDers. So along that vein, um, another one that I, I have to offer is brain breaks. I think brain breaks are a great way to build classroom culture. They can be fun and they can give everybody a brain break. What, give us an example. You're a teacher, you see your ADHDers are really kind (laughs) of revving up. You see a lot of movement, but you're saying this is a whole class accommodation. How do you introduce something like this to the classroom? And And I think that's where teaching becomes an art. So I'm a Spanish teacher. So sometimes I'll just randomly play salsa or merengue or some, maybe some music that I don't even think my kids are familiar with in Spanish and play it for three to four minutes and just let them dance. And some kids will dance and some kids won't. And some kids that you didn't expect to dance will. And some kids, 
<laughs> and some kids may not dance, but they will wiggle. Okay. And laugh. And so do you dance too? Does the teacher also dance or is it, it's completely whatever the teacher feels like, right? Absolutely. So that's one way, but there's really several ways. There's all different. Um, there's things that you can do that are related to your content area. There's things that you can do that are completely unrelated. Sometimes I incorporate Spanish vocabulary by saying, okay, um, I want you to pick somebody across the room and go say hello to them in Spanish and tell them what country you're from. Or, you know, there's just, it's almost infinite what you could do with brain breaks. Okay. So it's like dance. It's getting up and doing a simple activity that's not going to stress people out, but lets you move from your seat. It's being a, an active teacher. It's taking the passivity out of, you know, that sort of I'm in the desk and you're in your chair that you're basically saying, let's get more progressive here. Exactly. And it, it should be a low stress activity because we don't want to use brain breaks to come up with like, you know, your next three questions for the lesson or anything that's using your brain too much because it's supposed to really be a more of a, a movement um, break and something to create more of that classroom culture. That fits so much with this, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about your classroom and it just, it makes me smile uh, because, you know, I'd be, I think about my 21 year old and, you know, <laughs> We'd be at his conferences even later, like in high school, and they would say, Will, you can't just get up and walk to your backpack in the front of the class to go get your chips, you know, and then come back like crunching your chip. You know, you gotta like, so I'm thinking sometimes he had teachers, one entire conference was spent teaching him the route from our house to school to ride his bike so that he could get to school feeling like he'd done a ton of movement. And this was a Montessori school that did a, I mean, that was a middle school, but they got it. So it's being thinking outside of the box as being a creative teacher. What, what, what's, what's another idea that you have for teachers? Another idea is to incorporate flexible seating. And this is a place where we can allow student voice or choice without speaking but through movement. So we can offer different options for seating. We can offer different places in the classroom for children to sit and we can offer different settings. So we might have students that like to do their individual um, assignments on a beanbag and and just relaxing. And we might like others, we might have other students that really want to have a desk and want to have a couple partners next to them. And the more that we address students' needs um, for movement and also for, for their setting, their choice over setting, we, re, we proactively reduce a lot of these behavior issues that come up. How do you manage like Aaron's thinking putty and that kind of stuff as a teacher when you have students that want to have fidgets? What's your guideline there? I think fidgets are great. And I think that when we look at fidgets, we also have to look at sensory needs. Yeah, I think the two are very closely tied together. Fidgets are wonderful. I almost feel like when we're resisting fidgets, fidgets, excuse me, we're kidding ourselves because the pencil becomes a fidget. I feel like with things like that, the most important thing is to be implementing them in a way that instills self-advocacy and self-awareness so that the student 
does it think that they're playing with their pencil uh, for no reason, quote unquote, but begins to understand their need for, for movement or, or sensory input. So let's say you're working with a student and they're taking their pen apart and putting it back together and taking it apart and putting it back together. And you see their Spanish verb sheet is empty, right? And you're, you're wanting that student to have more awareness. Like you need to move and you also need to figure out how to get your work done. So how would you as a teacher respectfully work with that student to help them do something that enhances their focus? In my mind, the taking apart the pencil and putting it back together during individual an individual assignment is avoidance. Yes. That would be the function of that behavior. So people avoid things for a whole host of reasons. I think it could be because they're just not interested in the lesson, but most of the time it's because they don't understand the lesson or because they need some type of support to complete the assignment. Or many times it's because they have a need that's not being met emotionally or physiologically, so they can't even begin to worry about your lesson. So I think for me, it's really the behavior is pulling apart the pencil, but what is that behavior serving? What's behind it? So then you just casually figured that out with the student. You kind of do your detective work as a teacher to you know, come over and see what's going on. And so you have to have really good rapport with your student with, of course, all students, but you know, what we, the research really shows is that kids with ADHD, one of the biggest factors that contributes to success is teacher student relationship way. Yeah. So you have to work really hard to build that with those students to be able to have the trust for them to tell you what's going on. Well, and ironically, I don't have to work very hard. And I think that's because of a sad reality. I think that our ADHDers spend so much time in school, and it hurts me to even say this, misunderstood, mm-hmm. with their feelings being hurt, their self-esteem taking a hit, that I think when you show just a little bit of interest, um, I'm not a special education teacher. That's not my background. Just me saying to them, you know, I noticed that when we do these type of assignments, you tend to play with your pencil or look at the ceiling or suddenly find the outside fascinating. Um, Is there, what's, what's that about? You know, how can I help you? What is it that you, you feel that you need? So if you just position yourself as somebody who maybe doesn't have all the answers, but cares. And the big thing, if I could say this, like a neon, you know, doesn't think they're being bad. Yes. Yes. And just partners up with them. And that's something I talk about in my book is just partnering up with them. ADHDers, like all children, want to do well in school. Nobody wants to do badly at anything. It's just, you know, partnering up with them and helping them to figure out, you know, what is up with that. And I'm going to tell you, eight to nine times out of 10, a child is doing that because they don't feel that they can complete that assignment successfully. I think... When you have a child who's suffered in this way, it, you know, and you're already someone that enjoys working with kids, there is, there's something about seeing kids really struggle at this day and age, and we're turning a corner, something different is happening, people are understanding this, it is, it's, you just, 
I feel like you have new experiences for all these parents listening, for teachers listening, for me, and it's just exciting. Thank you. And I hope so. I I mean, unfortunately, education can lag behind society in a lot of ways in terms of technology and in in terms of, of the support that we need because we're always so strapped for support and resources and all these other issues that come behind us systemically. But sometimes it's not about anything fancy. Sometimes it's about just, most of the time, it's about just telling a kid, I see that you're avoiding this, or you seem to be avoiding this. What, what's, what is it that you need or what would help you? One of the things I've found during this pandemic that's been an unexpected uh, joy is that I'm doing more Zoom calls with teachers, very short ones. I mean, I know we're all so busy. So I'll just say, can I do a 15 minute? I'll get a release. Used to be that the teacher would fill out this form for me. And I liked my form because it had open-ended spaces for the teacher to write, you know, what they really, it wasn't a true false kind of thing. It was personal, but I now see the teacher and we quickly, I say, okay, I have this new client. I'm trying to, you know, tell me what you notice. I'm learning so much. I'm, I feel like we both come away because I'm provide, I'm gathering for the parent, you know, many times. And the parent is often quite frustrated with school. They're feeling really down about their child failing school. And the te- they're saying, you know, the teacher isn't cueing my student to turn the page. So my son is getting Fs on the back of the, because he's not, be, you know, and that's not in his 504. And you know, for listeners, a 504 accommodation plan it helps students with ADHD get various accommodations in school. Anyway, then I talked to the teacher and the teacher's like, I, you know, I had no idea that, you know, there's so many misunderstandings going on. The teacher is usually very open to collaborating and it's making a big difference because then that student the next week is so much happier in school. And that's something that needs to happen is that we need to have real collaboration. 504s and IEPs, Individualized Education Plans, are legal protections that are important for our children. But I personally, in my opinion, think that they're only as good as the understanding of the person reading them. If the person reading them doesn't understand or doesn't have the correct lens when they're dealing with children with ADHD or looking at the function of behavior, it becomes a, a rote and kind of mechanical process. And that's really not what it needs to be. You look for the, and you see the same accommodations, sit closer to the teacher, get multiple step reminders. And you are talking in this rich language that yes, you're describing it as very simple, but it's also very rich. It's compassion is there and different than a, than a very stale 504, which is a necessary document too. So let's talk about after flexible seating, you've given us four, what would be another, the fifth, and obviously there's many, but another way to incorporate movement um, that parents can know about in the classroom. The last one that I want to offer has two parts that I would like to mention. Kinesthetic learning strategies are important for all of our students. I'm going to say that because one of the things that we know about students, particularly in America, is that We do have an obesity crisis. We do have a lack of movement. We do have a reduction of recess. Every year there seems to be less and less recess. And it doesn't have to be so all or nothing. It doesn't have to be, I sit still in my chair 
for 40 minutes, and then I have X amount of minutes of moving around. We really can mix this together. So when we look at kinesthetic learning strategies, there's two directions or major directions that we could go into. One of them is blended learning, which when we go towards the new normal, whatever, I, I like to call it the better normal, because I'm hoping that we can take what we've learned with technology and incorporate that with what we were doing prior to create a better normal. One strategy specifically is station rotation, or it's a form of blended learning. So what that would look like is, let's say there are three stations in my classroom. In one station, I'm offering direct instruction where I'm speaking with kids. They have an opportunity to ask me questions. In another station, they're working on an assignment collaboratively. And then maybe in a third station, they're doing a different activity that supports that lesson. And they move through these stations at different, we can divide the class into different groups and people have more flexibility about how much time they need in each station. Yeah. So the student is less bored also. Exactly. And that's a great place to incorporate these technologies that we're getting so great at in distance education when we go back, because one station could be technology. So Mm -hmm. that does give students an opportunity to uh, benefit from that. And then the other direction, and these again are just major directions, but kinesthetic learning is almost infinite as well, is project-based learning. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that when I started to ask Jason, and this was like the eight-year-old Jason, questions about how he likes to learn, because I just want to point out like a lot of ADHDers, Jason actually doesn't have a deficit of attention. He has an attention disorder. Paper focuses on things that are interesting to him. Mm-hmm. So recently, and I don't want to get political, he went on this whole Democrat versus Republican thing. And this child could tell you more than I could about the political situation in this country, et cetera. Um, then another time it was, you know, why doesn't it rain very much in Yuma when we moved here and with the different cloud formations. So the curiosity is there. The brilliance is there. And when he started to describe the way that he likes to learn, he really was describing what teachers call project-based learning, where we're not learning passively. Yes. So for Jason, the way he, you know, and for the listeners, Yuma is where she is, Yuma, Arizona. So if he was going to dive into the rain patterns in Yuma, what would that look like for Jason? What would he be doing in his project? Jason, because he's at home, what it looks like is him watching a lot of videos and talking to me and asking me to watch videos and then <laughs> additional questions. And then we have to research those. So it looks like research, like in the classroom are different experiments. And that's something else that could be actually incorporated into station rotation, where on one station, they're working with an experiment on another one, maybe they're looking at the background and technology or watching that video And then another station that they're actually speaking with a teacher and getting some direct instruction or having the opportunity to share their inquiry with the teacher, their questions. There's a lot of alternatives that we can use in classrooms that are considered best practice or better practices to increase achievement for everyone. We have so much research to back this up, but they also address the needs of our ADHDers. Well, what I find is that many of my ADHD students are, when they tour schools, they end up at project-based schools. They, that's where they want to be. And there's, there's the good part is that those schools are open. I think the tough part is that many times those schools who are more alternative 
still find their ADHDers are way behind in the project because I, again, it's like all these papers they have to write and all of these things that we know our kids with the written expression and all of that, it gets tricky. So I'm often the one saying, okay, let's get the student dictating their writing. Let's get this student having um, a three-page written assignment as opposed to seven pages, you know, all kinds of ways I'm trying to modify those assignments. And half the time, I don't know, it's really tricky for me even because I I think the student has an IEP and they're failing in a project-based school because they're not doing their work. And, you know, it's really hard to know how to figure it out. Well, and those are issues that that can happen in any sort of setting. So project-based learning can be a great concept, but again, we have to look at how we're implementing it and how we can adjust our implementation. So when you're you're bringing those things up, you're basically, in my mind, touching on the executive functioning issues of organization that a lot of our ADHDers deal with. Jason's a great writer, and yet he turns things in half-written sometimes, or recently, he wrote about the wrong prompt or he, I think what happened is that his teacher dictated a prompt and Jason heard half of it and wrote a really eloquent essay about that piece and did not at all address the second part of what she was saying. And he failed, he failed his writing benchmark. And it, it really bothered me because what he wrote was brilliant. It was really good, but he didn't follow directions. Yes. So And as a teacher, I'm going to tell you that it's not only my ADHDers that have trouble with this or that need support with executive functioning and organization. So one way we can do things is we can scaffold. For example, I teach Spanish and I recently had my students write a persuasive essay and they're in high school, but we started the essay going over paragraph structure. And then we went into your three arguments and then we had someone give them a counter argument and we're writing a rebuttal. And if when we scaffold things, we really support all kids with their executive functioning skills of organization. When we do things that way, like those papers that you were talking about with project-based learning or my persuasive essays that my kids were doing will turn out way better. And we're teaching kids these academic skills that we know that they need long-term. Yeah, I love that idea that everybody, regardless if you have ADHD or not, you're all learning really well how to do your intro. You're all learning about those body paragraphs really well together. And instead of being just kind of, okay, here you go each week, check in about it, but I'm not really going to be as, you know, hands on with you each week. So gosh, we could talk forever. And I realized it's time to close, but you've given so many good recommendations. I want to make sure, Nicole, that I lead people to your book. So your website is Nicole, N-I-C-O-L-E, Biscotti, B-I-S-C-O-T-T-I.com. And you can find her on Twitter as well. Tell me the title one more time, Nicole. I can learn when I'm moving, going to school with ADHD. If this topic speaks to you, feel free to subscribe to my podcast and pass this episode on to other parents, educators, anyone touched by ADHD. Thank you again for listening. And until we meet again, just remember that we all have areas of brilliance. Sometimes it just takes a while to find them. Mm -hmm.